0: Okay,
1: great, if I could have your attention, I want to welcome you to um, the Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Um, This is an important Grand Rounds for us because we have special visitors from the American Cancer Society um, with whom the Cancer Center partners in many different areas, uh, especially around patient supportive services, but also we have a institutional research grant from the ACS that allows us to give a number of young investigator awards each year and uh, we're very, very enthusiastic and also very appreciative of that partnership and those opportunities. And so I want to start by welcoming, um, we have several officials from the American Cancer Society, but also many of their supporters are here today. And um, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to share with you um, at least one tiny aspect of what the American Cancer Center funds here, namely these um, Early Investigator Awards. And today's speaker will be Mary Jo Turk, known to many of you. Um, she's an associate professor here, but came 10 years ago as an assistant professor, um, early out of her training at Purdue and then at uh, Sloan Kettering as a postdoc. And one of the most exciting things about Mary Jo has been sort of the systematic orderly approach that she has taken over many years to a single problem that initially sounded pretty crazy to me. But not being an immunologist, you know, I've learned to uh, temper my certainty about what is interesting and what isn't interesting. And um, have watched um, her research program uh, grow with interest and. That's been recognized through not only publication in outstanding um, peer-reviewed journals, but also uh, consistent funding from federal agencies and um, other investigators partnering with her and wanting her as a partner on their grant. I guess she's probably a co-PI on close to half a dozen federal grants uh, as well as her own grants where she's a PI. Mm -hmm. And so um, Mary Jo, without further ado, I have some things I have to say about, about not having any uh, commercial. I've lost my little slip of paper. But the gist of it is, she is not going to talk about any off treatment use of drugs and has no financial conflicts of interest. And also, if you want CME credit for um, this conference, you need to be sure that you sign up outside after the conference. Um, I think that covers everything, along with thanking our regional sites. Um, Mary Jo, it's all yours.
0: Okay, um, thank you, Mark, for your kind introduction, and um, just to back up to that for a second, my disclosure statement. Um, I also um, just want to start off by by saying uh, thank you to the ACS for funding the work that I'm going to talk to you about today. Um, I was the recipient of a research scholar grant that's been funding this work since 2011. And um, it's really helped us to continue what's been really our, our major interest in the lab and understanding the relationship between this um, interesting disease called autoimmune vitiligo, vitiligo and immune responses to melanoma. So I've kind of divided what I'm going to talk about today into three parts. First, I'm going to introduce the concept of what is vitiligo, what is melanoma, and um, talk about some work we've published over the past several years um, in understanding this this relationship between these two phenomena. Um, And then I'm going to talk mostly today about unpublished work. um, And first, um, our understanding, focusing in on on skin, as you could tell from the title of the talk. And understanding how vitiligo affected skin may be a unique place uh, for T cell responses to melanoma and characterizing these T cells. And then finally, just some preliminary data we have regarding mechanisms and how we think that that this may all be interrelated. So just to introduce for those of you who don't know um, what melanoma is. So melanoma is a cancer that arises from the pigment producing cells in the skin called melanocytes, um, shown here. And um, these cells make pigment and they export it to keratinocytes, which is why we have pigment in our skin. And these are found in human at the junction between the dermis and the epidermis. Um, What's interesting, and I'm going to be giving you our our mouse data, um, in the the mouse, if you've ever taken a black mouse and shaved it, you'll notice the mouse has pink skin and black hair. And that's because their melanocytes only reside at the base of the hair follicle. So just keep that with you uh, while I go through the talk today. um, but what is melanoma? So melanoma is when a uh, melanocyte accumulates a series of oncogenic driver mutations that we're understanding better and better these days. And it proliferates out of control and um, starts to become invasive and metastatic. On the left here are some examples of normal nevi, which are not concerning, or, or moles. And on the right are some primary dermal invasive melanomas, which are very concerning looking. Um, one in 50 Americans will develop melanoma in their lifetime, so that's lifetime risk. And um, interestingly, um, and unfortunately, it's a leading cause of cancer death actually in women between the ages of 25 to 30. So um, we've had a very exciting time. Being in the field of melanoma and tumor immunology has actually been, I'd say, a very exciting time over the past, uh, the past few years. Um, for many years, there were no drugs available for metastatic melanoma and uh, immune, immunologists, tumor immunotherapy uh, was, was very focused on melanoma for many years and as a result of that, we now have two drugs, one approved in 2011, an antibody to the negative uh, checkpoint regulator CTLA-4 and in 2004, just a couple months ago, antibody to PD-1, which is another uh, nonspecific checkpoint blocking pathway, and interfering with these basically promote cytotoxic, what I'll be talking about today, these killer cytotoxic T cell responses to melanoma. And that's thought to be one major mechanism by which these drugs work. And they're actually uh, quite effective, impressively effective in subsets of patients with melanoma and metastatic melanoma. So um, in part because of these drugs, Uh, cancer immunotherapy was deemed the discovery, breakthrough of the year, at Science Magazine 2014. So I feel like our time is here, but there's still a lot of work to be done in understanding this. And in thinking about um, immune responses to cancer, using melanoma as a model, but this applies to all cancers, it's helpful to think of tumors, um, and they're developing from self-tissues. So here you have self-tissues, and I tried to make a Venn diagram showing tumor here. And this is a melanoma cell and a melanocyte, and you can see here that they share a lot of the same antigens because they arise from melanocytes. And a majority of the antigens that a tumor cell expresses are shared by the normal tissue counterpart of that tumor. But one of the goals of the immune system is to not respond to these things because they're self antigens. And so when you actually generate a CD8 T cell response against tumor, like many of those, like those two drugs I showed you do, um, the result is that it's a cross-reactive response against the melanocyte, or whatever normal tissue counterpart of the tumor there is. And in melanoma, it's actually certainly not a, a fatal uh, condition. And many patients live with this. This is the associated autoimmune disease uh, for melanoma, and it's called vitiligo. And this was a patient. Um, contrast is bad on this projector, but you can see here is um Under black light, you can see it very well. She began to depigment. This was highlighted in the New England Journal several years ago. But she began to depigment in her face and came into the clinic and they found that she had a melanoma in regression in her lymph node. And that was the first sign of the melanoma. But actually, the melanoma was undergoing regression and the T cells, in responding to those antigens on the melanoma, cross-reacted and started attacking the normal melanocytes in her skin. Um, So this vitiligo, in association with melanoma, has been known for for many years now. And it's an independent positive prognostic factor. So patients that get vitiligo actually do better in terms of survival. And um, it's also been associated with positive responses to immunotherapies. majority of the data is with high dose interleukin 2, which has been used for many years, but we're now seeing data um, from these newer immunotherapies as well, which are also associated with vitiligo. So um, we were interested in this, and um, it's been shown that vitiligo has been recognized. And it, throughout the throughout the literature over the years, it's al- always reported, well, this patient gets vitiligo, or these mice get vitiligo. And, they had this good anti-tumor response, and look at this side effect. And vitiligo has been dealt with as a side effect for many years. Um, but we had this this idea a few years ago in um, the studies I'm mm-hmm. about to show you that maybe the uh, maybe vitiligo once it develops isn't just a side effect, but in addition to that, maybe the killing of melanocytes, T cells can sense that. Maybe that's part of the immune response, and maybe the induction of vitiligo can feed back into the immune response and and support long-lived immune responses, and that's why these patients are protected better. And to address this, um, this work was started by a patient in my lab about 10 years ago now when when, um, we started the lab together. And um, we've used this model since then, where we, we take black six mice. Again, these are mice with black hair, which you'll see is very convenient for us. And we put a primary tumor. We use this B16 melanoma. That's a mouse melanoma. It's very poorly immunogenic. And if you just throw it in the mice grows normally, there's no immune response. But um, What I had found a couple years before was that if you deplete a population of cells, which I'm not going to talk much about today, but they're called regulatory T cells. And these are immunosuppressive T cells. And we found that if we could deplete them very effectively with an antibody to CD4, um, that even though primary tumors kept growing, um, and I'll just point out one more thing about regulatory T-cells before moving on. It's been shown that that anti-CTLA-4 antibody, the ipilimumab, works in part by depleting the subset. So we think this is a, a relevant model to uh, the immunotherapies that are b- being used currently. Um, uh, but mice, we found and had published previously, could, could now recognize the, the tumor and generate a CD8 T-cell response against the tumor. And so patients started excising these tumors, which were still growing, and notice when you went down to the facility, and we weren't sure we were expecting it at the time, but then we saw it, is our mice started to depigment. And um, I'll show you. It only happens in a proportion of the mice, but um, this is an example of a depigmenting mouse. And um, this is an example of uh, where it starts, because depigmentation always starts on that flank where the tumor is excised. and um, Some mice, it doesn't progress that much. Some mice, it progresses quite systemically, and they get almost entirely white. And um, this effect we showed was mediated by CD8 T cells. Um, This is vitiligo depigmentation. You can see 40% of the mice depigmented really with very rapid kinetics. And if CD8 T cells were depleted, the mice didn't depigment. So these mice had generated. Um, a CD8-mediated response that was cross the the primary tumor growing in the absence of these suppressive regulatory T-cells was enough to induce this response and and do what we call break tolerance to a self-antigen and induce this uh, melanoma, this model of melanoma-associated vitiligo. So we wanted to tie this back to the patients, uh, which are known to have a better prognosis, And we wanted to really look at long-term prognosis in in these mice, because so many studies up to this point had been been done where where you would uh, re-challenge a mouse right away after you gave a therapy. We wanted to know if this type of response was durable. And um, so we started to to use the word T-cell memory. Um, We wanted to know if these mice had better long-lived T-cell responses um, or T-cell memory against melanoma. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what we know, what we think T-cell memory is. Um, So, with time after something like an infection, or in our case, putting tumor on the mouse and depleting regulatory T cells, you get priming of CD8 T cells that recognize the tumor, and their numbers grow. They, the T cells actually proliferate greatly and they expand. And then after a while, when we surgically excise that tumor, you get some contraction of that response, but there's a long-term maintenance, and this is, Really, this has been shown largely from studies in, in infection models, and less from studies in cancer models. But if you look a month out, that some in some cases, if the response was primed properly, you're left with a long-lived memory response that when that infection comes back or the tumor comes back, it's there and it can rapidly respond. This we're vaccinated to generate memory to all kinds of pathogens that that might be encountered. So. Um, we wanted to know if mice with vitiligo actually had better long-lived memory that would protect against melanoma. And to ask that, we have the same timeline I just showed you with surgery. And we waited two months after surgery so we could stratify mice into those that had not depigmented, which are depicted in black, or those that had depig- depigmented, depicted in white here. And we came back in on the opposite plank in the dermis, just as we had put the first tumor. And we re-challenged these individual cohorts with that same tumor cell. So this is growth of those tumors. And we're looking now 60 days post the challenge, which was already 60 days post-surgery. So these experiments run a very long time. And you can see that untreated mice, um, this is tumor incidence, that's the little triangles, they all get melanoma. And if we had mice that had been treated, but they just never developed vitiligo, they all get melanoma. However, those mice with vitiligo that was, some of them were local, some systemic, they were significantly protected even two months out after they had initially been primed. So this was evidence of of of, um, immunity on the opposite flank that was long lived. Uh, At the time, uh, my first graduate student actually started working on this project. This is a Nick Coty, and um, her goal early on was to understand T-cell responses in these mice. I keep telling you these responses are mediated by CD8 T-cells. I'm going to show you that right now. Um, So again, we have our outline where we have our vitiligo-affected and unaffected mice. And you can monitor T cells in these mice, and we have done so just looking at their endogenous responses. But we found that we could much more sensitively monitor responses, this is a technique we use all the time now, um, using T cells from these special mice that are called female mice. And these mice were made, they're transgenic mice that were made at the NCI by Nick Restifo in his lab. And all of their CD8 T cells recognize this one peptide piece of an antigen that's expressed by melanoma cells and melanocytes. It's actually a piece of an antigen that's involved in uh, melanin synthesis, an enzyme that's involved in melanin synthesis. And they have, conveniently, this marker, thy 11 where we can use an antibody to detect these cells. So the way we use these cells, um, and this has become a very valuable tool for us, is we take what's considered a fairly small number, 10,000 of these cells. And they're naive. They've never seen, they've never been primed. We've seen their antigen. And we inject them before we inoculate tumors. And then you can see they're just a small population that can be traced throughout to basically give you an indication of what melanoma-specific T cells are doing. So we're going to be looking at these cells now really throughout all the data I'm going to be talking about. And it's important to mention that these cells themselves are not required for vitiligo. It's developing on its own in the host. And they don't also, we did early studies to show that they don't (coughs) perturb the incidence or the severity of vitiligo. So they're truly just a sentinel population. And um, we can do flow cytometry a month or later afterwards to pull them out and see how they are different in mice that have or lack vitiligo. And um, the most dramatic difference was that we had far more of these cells maintained in mice with vitiligo, and you can see that here. This is flow cytometry, and each little dot represents a single cell. 511, if you'll recall, is that marker on these cells, and CD44 means that they've been experienced, they've seen antigen, so they've been primed. And in lymph nodes, unaffected mice have a small population, and that's about tenfold bigger. These are individual mice. You can see it's very statistically significant. Tenfold bigger in mice with vitiligo. And in spleen as well. The populations are smaller, but tenfold larger in mice with vitiligo. So this was very interesting. And for a couple of years, we did a lot of correlative studies to show that mice with vitiligo had larger and better memory responses. But it wasn't until Kate Byrne joined the lab um, for her thesis work um, that we actually uh, decided we were going to understand whether the, the vitiligo itself was responsible for these higher responses. Because that was our original hypothesis, that. Vitiligo, this constant killing of melanocytes, supports these long-lived T cell responses. Well, the, really, the only way to do that was to use mice that could prime normal T cell responses, but could never get vitiligo. And the way we got around that is with this guy here on the right. This is a kit mutant mouse it's called a WSH mouse. It has a mutation in CKIT that makes it so its melanocytes never mature and get into skin. So the melanocytes die at the melanoblast phase during embryogenesis. And these mice, except for their eyes and a little bit around their ears, their skin is entirely free of melanocytes. We call these our vitiligo-insufficient mice. They cannot get vitiligo. And you can see here, these are unaffected mice, which don't get a a good T cell response. And then we're looking at proportion of these female cells. You can see a really nice response (laughs) in vitiligo-affected mice. And in these melanocyte-deficient mice, they can prime normal T cell responses, but they entirely crash out. And at 60 days after surgery, you cannot detect memory. So this was our, our proof. And we published in 2011 that vitiligo is actually required for the maintenance of these protective CD8 T cells, but not all T cells, just T cells that recognize these antigens that are shared between the melanoma cell and the melanocyte. So this was really exciting for us, and um, when, when Kate was publishing this work, she was still kind of completing her thesis work, and, and as I'd shown you, we've been very focused on lymph nodes and spleen and all the lymphoid tissues where immunologists commonly think that memory T cell responses reside. But there was a lot of noise at the time, and starting probably in 2009, and continues to be an, a very active field of research now of another population of memory T cells that were not resident in lymphoid tissue, but they were unique. They resided in skin. And these were first described in 2007 and then the real seminal paper in 2009 by Gebhardt and Kurt Boney, who were working in in an HSV infection model. And um, (laughs) since then, skin resident memory T cells have been identified in association, association certainly with HSV infection of the skin, also with vaccinia virus uh, skin scarification. And um, interesting, interestingly for us, one uh, was considered an autoimmune disease model, psoriasis. And it was shown that in psoriasis, T cells may become resident in skin. Um, so this led to, to our asking the question, we've been looking in lymphoid tissues for years, what's happening in skin? And um, this was really Kate's last work before she she graduated with her Ph.D. And Brian, fortunately, who's in the audience, um, and, and really a majority of what I'm going to be talking to you about is Brian's thesis work, um, Brian was fortunately rotating and, and joined the lab before Kate left and has substantiated a lot of her early findings and taken this very far, as you'll see. So um, Kate and Brian both looked at these mice with vitiligo and they looked at lymph nodes leading to lymphoid tissues in skin. And looking for these female cells, it's actually quite striking. So remember how those responses in lymph nodes looked so big when I had the graph scaled up to 2%. These, in skin, you have massive proportions of these uh, T cells. And this is 40 days out after surgery. So um, there's clearly something taking place in skin. And Kate, before she left, did one more kind of cool study where she took mice with vitiligo, and she segmented the skin based on the, this was the first site of surgery, which was fully depigmented, versus a distal site that had a border. Because some very, uh, very uh, old studies done by Caroline LaPoule's lab studying vitiligo in just uh, people, not even melanoma patients, but, but. People who don't have melanoma get vitiligo. She had shown that CD8 T cells accumulated at these lesions, but that was never taken any further. So uh, Kate looked at this this border, and also skin that wasn't yet depigmenting, but on a mouse with vitiligo. And she found the highest proportions at the surgery site and at the lesions, slightly lower but still measurable proportions, even on skin that was still black. So this was all interesting. but we didn't know. We're just looking for these cells. They were there. Um, it was really important to show that these cells, cells still had some function as memory, uh, 40, 60 days out after surgery. So Brian did a very simple experiment um, where he took this out. Maybe he doesn't think it's as simple because, as I understand, it's very difficult to isolate these enough cells out of the skin to do this experiment. But um, He took cells out of skin and looked for their production of the important um, effector molecule interferon gamma, which is really important, we feel, through a number of studies in immune responses to cancer and to uh, infectious diseases as well. And we've gated on a population of these female cells. And if you just take them out of skin, they're actually quiet. They're not producing much interferon gamma. And if you re-stimulate them with this chicken peptide, which they've never seen before, as an irrelevant control, they don't really make anything. But if you hit them with that melanocyte peptide, that melanoma peptide, uh, over 60% of them make interferon gamma. And you can see that unstimulated, irrelevant, and stimulated. Those are three individual mice. And that was as good, if not better, than the amount of cytokine we saw produced in the draining lymph node. So these cells are clearly able to recall, and they're functional. So based on these preliminary studies, Brian moved forward on this hypothesis, that vitiligo-affected skin, maintains a population of what we could call resident memory T cells that actually function in the immune response to melanoma. So in getting at this question, the most important thing and really the most accessible thing to do in the beginning was to look at what had been reported for uh, phenotypic markers of these cells. And so um, we looked in the literature and found a few markers that we were interested in. The first one is CD69. And those of you who are immunologists know that this is a marker of TCR engagement. And activated T cells express a lot of CD69. Um, but it's also been shown to be required for optimal tissue retention in skin and for other peripheral tissues. So that was an important molecule for us to look at. But it wouldn't really differentiate these cells from effector cells. Um, another marker we had to look actually for the absence of was CD62 ligand. So CD62 ligand is involved in lymph node homing, and it gets T cells into lymph nodes. So we wanted to see that the cells didn't have this, because that would be consistent with them um, not wanting to stick in lymph nodes. And that's another feature of these cells. The other molecule that I'll talk a lot about is CLA, or cutaneous leukocyte-associated antigen. And this one has been shown to be important in homing, tethering at skin, rolling along the skin endothelial uh, sites, and accessing inflamed skin as well. And then finally, CD103 has been another hallmark of resident memory T cells in skin and in other tissues as well. CD103 is the alpha chain of the integrin alpha e beta 7, and um, it has a role in tissue adhesion, retention, but also in skin has been shown to have a role in, in morphology and movement through skin as well. So that was interesting. So we looked at expression of these markers. And we started just with our mice with vitiligo, with that had, again, these green is meant to indicate that we had pre-transferred them with these female cells, which we can find. And we looked and we compared the phenotype in skin relative to lymphoid tissues, lymph node and spleen, to see if these could be distinguishing features of skin. (coughs) So first, looking at CD69, so this is a histogram. Area under the curve represents the number of cells. This is 40 days after surgery, and we're gating on the female cells. And the trace I show you here is spleen. So those cells, the curve shows that they actually, they're they're positive along this axis, so they express some CD69. But in lymph node, the cells express quite a bit more CD69. And this was actually consistent with the the published data, where we showed that these cells were supported by constant release of antigen from melanocytes that were dying. So this is consistent with the fact that they've recently engaged their T cell receptor in the lymph node, because there's melanocyte antigen that's draining into that lymph node. And in skin, we really don't see a, much of an enhancement. It looks like CD69 may be maxed out on these cells already. Um, so that was statistically higher in skin than spleen, but not compared with lymph node. When we look at CD62 ligand, we see in spleen a vast majority of the cells are low, but you have a little bit that's high. So that's reasonable. In lymph node, we're always kind of surprised to see this, but it's it's really reproducible. You have a very small subset of cells that have 62 ligand. I told you 62 ligand is, is important for T cell homing into lymph nodes. But when T cells get activated, they cleave it off their surface right away. So again, these cells are very activated, and they just have a little bit of this. However, when we looked at the T cells in skin, that little bit was gone, and they actually um, are entirely CD62 ligand low, which is consistent with skin resident memory. Well, what about CLA? CLA was a little bit more clear. In spleen, it was essentially negative. In lymph nodes, it's essentially negative. But in skin, the cells, you have some that are low, and about 50% of them express CLA. So that was a real defining feature of T cells in the skin, which is consistent with resident memory. And then finally CD103, again in spleen you actually have a mixed population. In lymph node, it's very high already, yet in skin, it's even higher. So you have a significantly higher expression of CLA and CD103. So this phenotype was actually consistent with skin resident memory. Um, And there are some other markers I don't have time to talk about that are consistent with skin resident memory. However, based on this, we really can't make any comment on whether these cells reside in skin or persist in skin. We need to actually manipulate the cells to see if they were doing that. And to do this, um, Brian decided to use a skin grafting model. And um, lots of thanks to Kathy Bennett for doing a lot of grafts on these mice. What he does is um, 50 days after surgery, a piece of skin is taken at the border of the vitiligo, where we remember where we see a lot of those T cells. And those skins are grafted onto mice that are rag knockout. We use rag knockout mice. These mice have no T cells. So we essentially separate the skin that has vitiligo from the whole lymphoid compartment. And we park it on a mouse that has no T cells. So any T cells that maintain in this graft will have come from that original piece of skin, right? Um, So this is a picture of one of the graphs. They're actually beautiful, how well it works. And the graph grows out entirely white. Um, I'd like to show you, and this is, okay. so this is a long experiment as well. This is 50 days after tumor excision, and then this is the graph 50 days out after surgery. We wanted to ensure, this is a 100-day experiment. We wanted to ensure that this was memory. I'd like to show you. What this looks like after Brian shaves it, because you know, we could probably talk about this at length. We haven't followed up really too much on this, but the vitiligo stays very, very localized. And actually, the grafting, the cutting, and suturing appears to induce hair regrowth around the wound site, but those Clearly there's no vitiligo. The vitiligo, we were kind of hoping the vitiligo would spread right off the mouse and you know basically go off onto the rag knockout mouse. But that piece of skin itself is not sufficient to confer vitiligo to the to the recipient. Um, yet we wanted to know if these cells remained resonant. That's what skin resident memory cells are supposed to do. And to ask that, we needed a control at the same time. So we saved some of these from the cohort that we didn't use as donors. And instead, we saved them, they got a little bit more white, and we used them. But these skin samples would have also had some lymphoid uh, contribution plus. They didn't undergo surgery or manipulation or anything. So take it for what it is. Um, but we're going to be looking at CD8 T cells and female cells in this skin versus this skin. And again, this is flow cytometry. Um, this is 100 days. Uh, on the top is control skin. And again, each dot is a little cell. You can see uh, this is just the total CD8 population by uh, light scatter. And in the control mice, about 1% of their CD8 T cells are, um, or of their cells in skin, are CD8 positive. And then if we gate on that, about 16% of those are PMEL cells, so these tumor antigen specific. If we look in the graft, 50 days out, We actually see, surprisingly, that the CD8 proportion is higher. And we think that this is due possibly to some cells leaving the graft that aren't CD8 cells, but also we feel that CD8 cells may be expanding in the graft. And fortunately, it's very hard to show here, but about 3% of those cells were still these female cells. So it was decreased, and you can see here, from about 15% to about 2%. So about tenfold decrease, but there was this persisting population of these cells, certainly of CD8 cells and of these melanoma-specific T cells, in these white skin grafts. So we were interested in comparing what these cells look like versus these based on the skin resident phenotypic markers I just talked about. And looking at CD69, it was quite apparent that the graft, which is in green, so these are female cells that maintained in the graft, versus the control just in the vitiligo-matched skin. And those cells, actually, that were left over, consistent with them being more skin-resonant, it had higher levels of CD69, actually lower levels of CD62 ligand, higher levels of CLA. You can see here they're all CLA positive, as opposed to this trace, which is like what I showed you last time. And also, statistically, higher levels of CD103. So these cells clearly looked like they were resident in the graph. So just to summarize this part, um, we find that vitiligo-affected skin does harbor these very large, persistent, and functional, based on interferon gamma production, populations of melanoma-specific CD8 T cells. Um, They exhibit several phenotypic hallmarks of resident memory cells. And this is substantiated by the fact that a subpopulation of these cells actually can remain resident despite surgery and transplant, and in the complete absence of a lymphoid compartment. And these, skin, these clearly skin-resident T cells in graft express even higher levels of these markers. So, let's talk about these markers for a minute. And in the second part of the talk, we're going to kind of drill down a little bit. Um, and I don't—we don't have. The full answer to the story yet, but um, really the question of what are the mechanisms? Are these markers are there on T cells? What is their role? Are they important? So, um, CLA, CD103, and CD69 are the three markers we found. I'm going to talk—not really going to talk. We don't have any data yet on CD69, but I'm going to start by focusing on the majority of the data that we have, which is on CLA. And um, to understand how to look at the function and the role of this molecule, it helps to really understand a little bit more about what this molecule is. And due to the contrast of this slide, uh, a few things are lost, but I'll explain them. So T cells, actually, CLA is, is not a protein antigen. The antibody doesn't bind a protein. It actually binds a sugar modification on a protein, a fucose uh, a fucose modified version of this protein, PSGL1. And this is a T cell and it expresses PSGL1. And what you can't see were these really little delicate carbohydrate decorations on it, these sugars that enable it to bind to its ligand, P selectin, which is on the skin endothelium. And so CLA, the, CLA means the glycosylated protein. So um, one way to ask whether. CLA is involved is to basically get rid of the glycosylation and to do that we can the glyco the sugars are fucose and It's been shown that FUT7 the enzyme is involved in putting sugars on this protein and also on a few other proteins So it's not perfect for CLA But if we work with the FUT7 knockout and there are FUT7 knockout mice that we use They no longer have these carbohydrates and they no longer have a CLA that can bind to selective. So um, Brian got these Feud7 knockout mice, and he bred them onto the female background. So um, we were able to use them in our timeline. So these are, that's our standard timeline for inducing vitiligo. And instead of just putting in wild-type female cells, we put in 10,000 of those. And then he put a one-to-one ratio in of Feud7 knockout female cells. So everything about these cells is the same, except they're not putting these sugars out. Well, and they don't express the enzyme FUTE 7 as well. So um, and you can see, so if you imagine that, and these are these have distinct, he also bred them onto distinct congenic backgrounds. So these are labeled with thy 11 and these with li 51, And you can detect those differently with an antibody. And if you can imagine you put in equal proportions and you're not affecting the incidence of vitiligo. So vitiligo progresses independently of these cells, but you can follow and see where do they go, what do they do, and how do they act differently. And um, in order to address the importance of this molecule at a memory time point, it was initially important to establish that there was no difference in priming. You know how the response initially ramps up? We wanted to see if there was any defect in priming of these cells, because that would uh, have ramifications for memory development. So we first looked at day 13, one day after surgery. And um, we see that the cells prime quite similarly. So this is how we visualize. This is the same. This is one mouse. And on this axis, we can see the Thy11 positive cells, which are the FUT7 knockout. And on this axis, you can see the Li52 cells, which are the wild-type female cells. These are both the same melanocyte-specific T cells, but these lack FUT7. And you can see that the proportions are very similar in tumor-draining lymph node, which is where priming is thought to occur, primarily. Um, We also were interested in understanding whether these cells could ever access skin, or if they were just generally impaired in access to skin. And what we saw during the effector phase, day day 13, was that actually, um, although it looks to be lower, it was not statistically significantly lower, um, that these cells can do a pretty good job of getting into skin. Um, at this primary phase. So they're not completely, they can get into lymph node, they can be primed, and they can access skin. So that's, all things are are fairly equal, maybe slightly lower access to skin, although non-significant. So now we were able to look at the memory phase of the response. So 50 days out after surgery, knowing that things were all equal started here, and we wanted to know if u 7 affected memory development. And first, we looked at lymphoid resident memory, and the idea being that maybe it would not influence the development of lymphoid resident memory, but that maybe we would see more of an influence on skin resident memory. So looking at the lymph node and spleen, we can see here, again, we we were able to maintain a very good population of these cells in lymph node. And while it tended to be lower in lymph nodes, the FUT7 knockout cells, This was not significant, and as I understand, Brian just took this experiment down again yesterday and again saw no significant difference between these two. So we don't believe that there's a a real difference in lymph node in terms of maintenance of these cells as memory. And certainly in spleen, the populations are maintained very well regardless. But in skin is really where we see the defect. And here we have a large population of wild type cells in skin and a very small population. In some mice, it, it wasn't even, we couldn't even get, uh, we couldn't in any of these mice get enough cells to phenotype. And in some of them, we didn't see any cells. So clearly, a significant reduction. So it would appear that FUT7 expression on T cells is required for them to establish skin resident memory. Well, that kind of begs the question. If if you need FUT7 to establish this resident memory compartment, what is the effect of FUT7 on vitiligo development and even on immune responses to melanoma? So to answer this, um, we took FUT7 knockout mice. So these are not perfect in that they lack FUT7 in all cells. Um, Yet we were able to deduce a role of FUT7 in the host overall in the induction of vitiligo. And we used either mice that lacked total Feud7 on all their cells, or mice that were totally wild type. And we induced vitiligo and looked for incidence after surgery. And the effect was actually quite pronounced. So these are black six wild type hosts, and they all get vitiligo. Um, or not all, except 20%, so there's a <coughs> proportion that don't. But the Feud7 knockout mice get a lower incidence of vitiligo. Yet it's not an absolute requirement. These might still get some vitiligo. And this, in a way, was was better for us, because now we had a vitiligo-affected cohort, albeit small, and another vitiligo-affected cohort. But one was pute 7 Knockout, and the other was not. So these two cohorts. And we could come in and re-challenge them and ask, was there something qualitatively different about the vitiligo in these environments that would change the ability of the host to reject tumor. And this experiment I'm showing is preliminary. It's only been done once. But um, there does appear to be a complete lack of immunity. All the mice got tumors very quickly, by day six, if they were feet seven knockout, whereas the black six mice had a proportion with significant protection. And this experiment is still running. So um, based on that, we can infer that CLA and um, would have a role in the formation of skin resident memory. And also that while this is not absolutely required for vitiligo development, it does play a real role in vitiligo. But it provides a qualitatively different type of vitiligo that does not provide an environment that's protective against melanoma. So um, now I'm going to tell you just some a little bit less data that we have, but I think interesting nonetheless, some preliminary data we have regarding CD103. And we don't have yet all of the tools to address the same question. I think we've just completed breeding of CD103 knockouts to female mice. Um, But we do have the CD103 knockout mice. And I want to just talk a little bit about what CD103 does first. So its most well-known ligand is E. cadherin. And in the skin, E. cadherin is found actually on the epidermis. And it's thought that resident memory cells adhere at the epidermis, at least that's been shown in in viral infection models. And so we asked two questions that we could ask at this point. First of all, is CD103 required for vitiligo pathogenesis? And second, do these female cells that we know express CD103, do they localize with E. cadherin at the dermal-epidermal junction? So first, I'm going to show what we did to determine vitiligo. Um, So like the FUT7 knockout, we used the CD103 knockout mice versus wild-type mice. And we looked for vitiligo incidence after surgery. And we were actually quite interested to to see that CD103 did not delay vitiligo development in the mice. In fact, incidence of vitiligo was very similar, regardless of whether CD103 was there or not. There was no significant difference. However, remember when I told you that in many of the mice, the vitiligo develops at the surgery site and then spreads systemically? Well, we saw something interesting in these mice. And when we looked at how many of these spread beyond the surgery site, there was a very clear difference. Where in black six mice, almost all of the mice eventually got this systemic vitiligo. In the CD103 knockout mice, vitiligo was specifically just Uh, confined to the surgery site so um, that would suggest the fact that maybe um, maybe CD103 plays a slightly different role than than what we thought it might play or maybe it plays a role in T cell movement through skin Um, and to really start to get at these questions of what are female cells doing in skin um, Tamar who is a a newer graduate student in the lab, uh, made a very useful tool for us and has started to use these mice to investigate T cell responses in skin. He bred female mice onto this TD tomato background. And TD tomato is a really, really bright red fluorescent protein so that all of these cells will fluoresce. And he can transfer them in. And then, again, they don't perturb the disease, but he can track them and see where they go in skin. The panel that I'm going to show show you just very preliminary data, one representative panel um, showing staining of these cells in skin. And the female cells here actually aren't red. They're going to be shown in white because the red co-localizes with CD8, which is going to show up white. So we also stain CD8 in green. And E-cadherin, so the ligand for CD103 in red. And then nuclei are going to be a dappy stain in blue. And I really hope it shows up, but let me see. Oh, what I wanted to show, as well, is that we would expect the cells, if they were interacting with with E-cadherin, that they might be lining up at the dermal-epidermal junction there. And remember, as well, that um, the melanocytes for the mouse don't exist up here, but they exist in the hair follicle. So maybe there would be some. Uh, implication of that as well. Oh, it, it does show up pretty well, actually. So here's the skin. And um, if we're just looking at CD8, this is the epidermis. We actually do find CD8s in the epidermis. And I should mention at this point that this was done with the help of Ina uh, Huang and, and uh, Bali from her lab, because this is our first foray into uh, confocal microscopy. So um, and. Using their antibody to Econherin, which they're very interested in um, and and they're also very interested in skin resident memory and have been great collaborators on this you can see that you have CD8s in skin, but female cells really very surprisingly to us are not there that you do have CD8s there but the female cells which are in white are actually here and After looking at at several of these sections, it would appear that they localize near but not intercalated into the epidermis at the base of hair follicles. So what you see here is um, we think, although we need to confirm the staining with the melanocyte antibody, is the base of a hair follicle and that's why it's so cellular. These are upper sections of hair follicles. And the female cells, we don't know what they're aggregating with or really what they're binding to. So this is really answers more or brings up more questions than it answers. So. Um, We're starting to understand mechanisms. And it appears based on the preliminary vitiligo data that maybe CD103 is involved in T cell migration through skin or retention. And we really don't know what the lig, there are other ligands, but we don't know if those are playing a role or maybe CD103 is just not engaging. um, And we haven't even started to ask uh, what CD69 is doing yet. So just to provide some overall conclusions, um, vitiligo uh, maintains a population of functional, persistent, and um, melanoma antigen-specific memory T cells that we believe are resident in skin. So some things we want to answer now, do these cells directly mediate anti-tumor immunity? Um, We're just gearing up to do tumor challenges in skin grafts uh, to see if we can detect any level of protection when we separate the skin from the mouse. FUT7 has has actually provided some, some interesting clues here. Its expression on these T cells appears to be required for their differentiation into resident memory. But we need to go back now and do the experiments where FUT7 is only absent on CD8 T cells in the mouse and ask whether that impacts vitiligo development and tumor immunity. So we're doing those studies right now. And then CD103, we have a lot of questions here. Um, it doesn't appear to promote what we would expect, adhesion in the epidermis of these cells. So why do these T cells wind up in the dermis? Is there some antigen presenting cell there that they're using to sample melanocyte antigens coming from the hair follicle? Uh, it may be like in psoriasis where there are maybe uh, tertiary lymphoid structures in, in the dermis. We don't know, so Tamara's tackling those questions now. And then um, with, with a series of breedings, we're going to uh, drill down and understand the role of c 103 <coughs> in this whole model. So just to acknowledge, and in addition to the people who I've already acknowledged, um, who were really the hands doing the work, um, I have to acknowledge um, two other people from my lab. Shannon Steinberg, who's also actually probably done a lot of this work, but it hasn't been her main project. Just her hands in the lab and her intellectual contribution has been very valuable to us. Um, Andrea Boni as well, a talented a uh, Durham resident who who has since, has since gone on to his fellowship, but um, a trained tumor immunologist has been really helpful in this work. I'd like to acknowledge our collaborators who are at Dartmouth. Ed Usherwood, our, our uh, longstanding collaborator in understanding memory T-cell responses. Randy Noel and Ed and Randy are both on Brian's thesis committee, so they've been very engaged in this work. As I had mentioned, Ina and her collaboration, especially now that we're studying CD103 binding. I think that's going to be. There are going to be a lot of exciting things we can do together. Um, Mark Ernstoff, who uh, actually uh, we had done some work on human patients and looking at um, at memory T cells in in circulation, not yet in skin. But Mark continues to be an excellent collaborator together with Jan from his lab and David Mullins, who's also uh, has has projects in the field of vitiligo and has been a great uh, contributor. Um, I'd like to thank Kathy Bennett again for all her help with skin grafting, Vali, Coutreau for her help with microscopy, and also Isabel from the Noel Lab, and just the Noel Lab and Mullins Lab in general for their help with uh, reagents and, and just general support, and Dart Lab for their help with flow cytometry, and Ken for his help with microscopy. And Again, I'd like to thank the ACS for the support through the Research Scholar Grant. This work was actually also supported early on after I arrived from an ACS Institutional Award and also early on through COBRA. And we've since leveraged this funding uh, to secure NIH support for for this work as well. So thank you.
1: Really tight schedule, so we're going to end a little bit ahead of schedule. But we do have time for a couple of questions. So, um, I'll, I'll take the chairman's broadest. Yes, the first Um it indicated that you take a patterns, B and you give them um, uh, melanoma, and uh, some number of them develop pilarigo. But those mice are in red, and they look at the same tumor cells. Um, uh, what are the determinants, or have you thought about pursuing the determinants, of which animals get vitiligo and which don't?
0: Yeah, so um, we, we have looked at that quite a bit. Um, and we, we don't really know the fundamental determinants, and we're not pursuing it, because honestly, it's a very difficult question. We think it's a stochastic phenomenon. We know that the mice that are going to get vitiligo, we can bleed them. Uh, at the time of surgery. And we can predict that they'll get vitiligo because they're the ones that prime the best T cell response. And we thought that might be due to tumor size growth. Maybe, maybe those mice had bigger tumors than the mice that didn't get vitiligo. We put about 200 mice in a, in a regression analysis, and there was no correlation for that. So um, what else? We looked at a handful of things. Clearly, they're the ones you can predict who's going to get it because they prime better. Why they prime better, we don't know. And again, we just have written it off to some mice will prime better than others because it's biological variability, but it's hand-waving. Or
1: microenvironmental, right? Some of them may have cut themselves on the cage. And
0: right, right. And we looked at cage effects, and usually, usually there is a bit of a cage effect, but it wasn't significant, you know, so maybe barbering or something. Yeah, we don't know.
1: Are the, mice, are the mice that developed um are they protected from a, a, a tumor challenge at non-skin site?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking. So they are. So they're protected from tail vein challenge in the lungs. So um, <clears throat> that's something we 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 certainly have to consider. You know, they have this, and we we think maybe what we're setting up is skin resident memory that protects in skin, and maybe lymphoid resident memory as well that protects at other sites. Where you don't have antigen, like lungs, um, so or even lung resident memory. I don't know. Um, that's the good news is that they're protected against something that would be like a metastasis, but that's kind of unrelated to you know what we've been doing in skin. But it's good.
1: As a follow-up to that, has anybody looked systematically at the patients who developed melanoma to see the course of their diseases, not metastatic to but it's Variably metastatic? I've
0: never seen that actually, so I don't know. That would be really interesting. Yeah, anyone wants to do (laughs) that?
1: All right, good. Jerry thank you so much.